Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Utibe Essien. Dr. Essien is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and an investigator at the VA Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion. He is also an international leader in the study of pharmacoequity which is something that I had never heard of until I learned about it from him about a year and a half ago. And since that time, it has become one of the most interesting fields of study that I have encountered, and his work is absolutely outstanding. He is on Explore the Space podcast to discuss this cutting-edge research, to discuss the future of pharmacoequity work, and the, the, the novel experience of bringing a new field of study forward for all of us to better understand and digest it is just absolutely outstanding to speak with him. I was looking forward to this one for a long time. Before we get to the conversation, a quick reminder, the Explore the Space merchandise store is open. You can check it out at www.explorethespaceshow forward slash merch. You can subscribe to Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. Please do leave us that five-star rating and a review. That really helps us out as well. And definitely share with your friends. Word of mouth is huge for us. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And you can find me on social media, Twitter at ETS Show. Instagram at Explore the Space Show. And you can check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. It was an absolute blast having Dr. Essien on Explore the Space podcast. We've been circling each other for a while. I am just delighted that this finally came together. So without further ado, Dr. Uchibe Essien. Uchibe, welcome to Explore the Space. I'm excited you're here. Thanks so much, brother. I'm excited to be here. We did it before we started recording. We took a screenshot because you are currently sitting in the 10 out of 10 rate my Skype room room raider position. And it is awesome. I got to give you credit. You know, uh, like they say, dreams do come true. Uh, <laughs> I thought <laughs> thought it was going to be when I got to med school or residency, but no, no. it's going to be when I got that 10 out of 10. For it's a 10 out of what actually happened? Like, did your social media take off? After, I mean, after the day after it was like a thousand followers in like 24 hours, it was something ridiculous. Wow. So they, they have a, a so strong cool. brand. So much respect to, to the people at Room Raider. It's a big deal. So I, I, I got back into collecting sports cards, I don't know, seven or eight months ago. And I've learned a great deal. And what you, when I was a kid, we collected cards and we would sort of subjectively say, this is, you know, mint condition or near mint or whatever. Now they have the one out of 10 scale where you send your card in and it gets graded and it comes back in a slab. The difference in price and in value between a nine out of 10 is massive. And so you getting 10 out of 10 grade is gem mint and it is like, it's the coolest thing. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. One of my friends was like, dude, so why is this a big deal? And I was like, let me tell you, I've been, I've been hustling you. hard for this. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, yes, in the grand scheme of life, obviously not. But it was a nice, fun treat last week. I would say hard disagree. It's on the top of the <laughs> curriculum vitae. Because look, if you were to, let, let's say someday down the road, you apply for a job with the medical group that I work for. And I got to review that CV. If I saw, you know, your name and your address and your email and your Twitter handle and 10 out of 10 <laughs> room raider with the date and a hyperlink, I'd call you immediately and be like, what's the story? It'd be, it, it's too good. Job, job given. Like, so let me know when you can sign up. I love it. All right. Let me, let me add that it. on there right now. That's right. That's right. Now, we have a lot of things that we want to talk about, but the reason that I reached out to you and I want to call out our friend and colleague, Dr. Kimberly Manning, you and I have been talking about you coming on the show for a long time. Um, I think we had scheduled once before too, and it didn't come together, but Kimberly did that sponsorship Wednesday thing on Twitter. And I texted you, I think after and said, like, let's just get this done. We, we got to schedule yeah. this. So I want to give her credit for the nudge because those sorts of online amplifications, they do lead to things. And I think it's important that we say that. For sure. For sure. And Kimberly's the GOAT. You know, I've, I've been team verified Dr. Manning for uh, a couple years now, but um, she is she's a legend and all, all respect to her and love. I, I've told her when she's been on the show, they're going to build a statue to her. Um, and I don't mean that flippantly. There, they, there will be a statue or a bust of her, probably at Emory, probably at Grady, but that'll happen. I honestly, I, I, and she would deserve it for sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There is work that you are doing, and I think the starting point is around kind of just the topic of breaking ground. I'm a mid-career physician, right? I trained at really good places with really, really smart people. And I learned, you know, a depth and breadth of medicine that I'm happy about. Um, I also know that there are will and always be opportunities for us to learn new things. The place that you have really established yourself as the expert and the person who is doing a lot of leading work is on a topic that over the course of my training in the first like 14 years of being in attending, I didn't even hear the word let alone understand the concept, pharmaco-equity or pharma-equity. Which one are we using to start off with? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So we we coined it pharmaco-equity. Um, pharmaco-equity. You no, know, it just it felt right. It rolled off the yeah. tongue when I gave the first talk a couple of years ago. But yeah, um, yeah that's what, we're, that's what we're, we're promoting. So I am a history major by training too. So I, I would really like to start off with the history of the work that you're doing. Acknowledging, like you said, you and people you work with created this term around a concept. Let's start with the concept first. What are we actually talking about? When you are being asked to speak or write, which is thankfully happening at a really high tempo, what are you being asked to speak and write about? Yeah, so we coined this term as uh, the ability of every patient, regardless of their race, ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, their availability of resources to have access to the highest quality of care that they need for their medical conditions. And so I've been in this game for, I guess, since 2000 and 
13 when I started residency. And so not too long, but it's 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 getting up there and have been thinking even before that, have been thinking about how patients who look like me and my family members are we're often getting different care in, in very different settings from the majority of folks who look like my classmates. So you flash back to when I was a third year or pre-med uh, volunteering at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, seeing patients um, largely from immigrant communities going to ED to get their primary care all the way to to rotating as a third year med school med student in the Bronx at uh, one of our public teaching hospitals. Again, seeing a really similar situation to being a resident uh, out in the community health center uh, outside of Boston. And again, that was a pretty consistent finding that folks who were, were for underrepresented groups were getting their care in different care settings and were getting less than care. Um, and so been passionate about that for, for over a decade now. And Really, I just thought that I was going to be the social justice warrior who's going to just come in, finally have that MD, um, big white, long white coat um, and start kind of solving problems, each patient individually at a time and realizing that that was going to be hard. That was going to be really challenging to do and that there was so much more than me just writing the right prescription to be able to get patients the care that they need. And so pharmacal equity, like you said, there's definitely been a historical perspective for me personally. And obviously, there's an even broader history that we can dive into as we chat, as we chat a little bit more. When you start putting this term out there, which audiences, which groups, who has reached out with the highest avidity first? When you think back on like the emails and the texts and the whatever, whatever platforms you were being contacted on, where was the highest level of uptake at the beginning? Yeah, no, Mark, it's been fascinating. So we first put this piece out in in stat news because we thought that kind of a, a lay general audience would be meaningful and to try and connect with the, not the typical, quote unquote, typical academic medical leaders, but connect with folks in the policy space. This was July of 2021. And so we're, you know, getting into better times around COVID nationally, but still pretty much in the thick of things. But they were still a huge public health, huge policy conversations happening. That was the audience that I was hoping to engage with. Um, a few months later, we published in the academic medical literature in JAMA. Um, and obviously that was a very different audience, a lot more academic um, medical leadership. And, and so I've had the opportunity to connect with both. And so um, the health policy folks have reached out to kind of learn more about how um, pharmacal equity embeds into um, local and state policy around ensuring medication access for, for communities. Um, but since our JAMA paper came out in October, it's been really fascinating to get connected with lawyers uh, who are thinking about patents and um, availability of generic therapies, um, patient advocate groups, uh, pharmacists, which has been a huge, huge group that I've been so fortunate to connect with um, because they're on the front lines. They're seeing this question from the local um, independent pharmacy in our neighborhoods to the C CVS around the corner, all the way through to at the national level. And I think that's, for me, been the most inspiring group to connect with because they really have been thinking about this question for decades. But as a med student, as a resident, and now as a faculty member, I haven't really got had a chance to connect with them in a meaningful way. And so I'm learning so much from them um, and really looking forward to continuing the conversation with them as well. When these groups do reach out, these individuals reach out, what are the bread and butter that you give them? What are the three things that end of the 30 minute phone call, end of the email thread, what are the couple of things that you want to make sure they leave with, whether they reconnect with you or they kind of go off to do their own thing? 
What are two or three things that are are imperative from your perspective for them to understand? I love it. Yeah. So I thought ABCs are, you know, as simple as that, it gets a little more complicated, of course. (laughs) But for me, the ABCs has been access, bias and cost. And so first starting out with access, you know, the conversation for decades now since the Affordable Care Act has been just ensure more people and we'll be able to get them the medications and the treatment that they need. And that policy and uh, resulted in 20 million more people being insured. And it was in uh, really significant reductions around health disparities, but not to the level that we had hoped, not to the level we expected. And so we're still seeing, even with that policy in place, uh, millions of folks who are uninsured. But more importantly, I think we have to reimagine access beyond just insurance. Like that card is not enough. Like we need to ensure that folks have the physical access to a local pharmacy and they're not hopping on two buses, a couple of trains just to be able to pick up their monthly prescriptions. And once we address the like physical access piece, actually making sure that when a patient comes to see me in clinic, that potential biases, implicit, unconscious or otherwise are being handled. And so what does it look like when a a homeless veteran comes to see me in clinic and is being started on a new therapy? Am I um, kind of triggering some of the unconscious biases that I've been trained in for decades, thinking that homeless patient individuals who are homeless can't afford their medications regularly? They they have too many falls because they're also um, experiencing alcohol use disorder. They're undergoing mental health challenges and are not going to be able to remember to take these medications. And that laundry list of um, biases comes up to play where we say, you know what, I'm just going to put them on warfarin, which is the one of the drugs that I study and not worry about anything else. And so that's not just obviously with patients who are homeless. That conversation comes up around income status, employment, race, ethnicity, et cetera. Um, and so what are those biases that we really need to check um, at the door when we're prescribing meds? And lastly, I think most importantly, thinking about cost um, this is an area that, again, in training, I did not learn enough about. I um would prescribe the best medication that I presented to my team on rounds. And that was it. Didn't think the next day about how our patients were actually going to be able to afford, adhere to, um, or continue on them. And I think that that's been a problem. That's a problem that we have as providers not being cost conscious. And a lot of our patients in some ways are experiencing the decisions we make um, without us actually knowing what they're going through. And so reducing costs, I think, is a big national policy issue where we're seeing more and more conversations there. And I think that's going to be really be the the bread and butter to ensure pharmacoequity around the country. You said at the beginning that the, the conversations around this are just starting and that you think about where to kind of execute change at scale, because as as gratifying as one-to-one patient interactions are, that's not scale. Where for you now, a couple years into the work with the expertise that you have and the cachet that you have as the go-to person, who, which audience would you like to get next to first to start getting scalable change, exponential change? It's huge. And so I think for me, policymakers are going to be the ones to make the change. Um, right now, the presidential administration has a focus on health equity. Uh, you know, they are, it's a COVID-19 health equity task force that I've been able to hop on meetings with. Um, it does seem like equity is a big part of their leadership model. And so I think we have a huge opportunity where there's infer- there's focus on equity. There's focus on reducing cost of drugs. This is the time to focus on pharmacoequity. And I think if that top 
top-down approach at the policy level um, really comes down that we can then influence insurers, influence payers, influence some of the uh, the pharmacy benefit managers like a CVS or an Aetna that actually influences the way that we and the cost of medications. Um, but I would love to kind of get in the ear of some of our leaders at the um, NDC, at the FDA, at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and say, hey, pharmacal equity should be at the center, um, not just reducing costs for the sake of reducing costs, but so that we're actually influencing and transforming the lives of our patients in an equitable way. And so I think that for me, that would be the first group. Uh, and I do believe that once we hit them, we'll be able to start to see changes down the line. July 2021 was the Stat News article. In that period of time, I you've not you've not told me this in advance, but I know that there has been pushback. Who have you gotten what not necessarily like calling out specific people, but from what spheres have you received pushback around the concept of pharmacoequity? Yeah. So at the same time, as I'm saying, I want I'm hopeful that policymakers will be the the main conversation starters. I we're seeing some of that pushback come from policymakers as well. And so nationally, we're hearing that the push for pharmacoequity, for example, for ensuring that uh, racial and ethnic minority groups have access to newer COVID-19 therapies as they've been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. They should be also disproportionately or in some way equitably have access to these newer therapies. We're hearing that there's now an an affirmative action towards um, prescribing new medications and that um, some of the policies that states like New York and Minnesota have originally put in place are, are being racist towards the majority group of individuals. And so that's really been the biggest place of pushback where my colleagues and I in, in health affairs, uh, I believe earlier last month, wrote that we we need to be race conscious in our approach towards pharmacoequity and not just saying, you know, we're colorblind. We, we know everyone needs to be treated equally. A rising tide will raise all ships, but rather actually being focused on the groups that have been disproportionately affected for not just the last two years of COVID, last decades, but centuries, um, and actually be conscious about um, that approach. And so, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of pushback from from certain um, circles around the policy space. And so I think that that's even more the reason for us to target them as our main, main target in this conversation. That kind of canard has been used on so many issues since i was in college um it's intellectually lazy and it it's it's so frustrating it's just sand in the gas tank that being said like it still has to be addressed because there's no mute button as you've learned and done your research and put more and more things out there what is something that you have learned as you're sort of doing the rock flipping exercise that when you learned that you thought this this can't actually be happening this can't be real this is so absurd this can't actually be real and yet here we are yeah so you know the the talk i always give kind of outlines the the process that we've made in this work and so my uh, research fields in atrial fibrillation, studying patients' access to newer blood thinner medications that help prevent strokes at like 70% um, the rate of not being on these medications. And so from 2018 through to this past summer, we've relayed three studies, one in a huge national registry of patients with atrial fibrillation, pretty broad insurance access. Some people had no insurance, some people had private, and we saw racial disparities in access there. 
we said, well, probably some of those insurance differences are big drivers. So let's look in our second study. In 2020, we write a study that looks in just patients enrolled in Medicare. And we see uh, among Medicare beneficiaries, are those racial disparities present? We sadly see really similar disparities where Black patients were at about 25% lower odds of being prescribed these therapies. So I show up in, you know, first day on the job here at the University of Pittsburgh in the VA in 2018. And I'm like, this is going to be the, the silver bullet, the VA where folks get access to medications at like five to $11 a month. Um, there's a uniform system. You go to the VA in Palo Alto or the VA in Pittsburgh, patients have the same access to therapies. And literally just last summer, we published the same finding that black patients, Asian patients, Hispanic patients all had lower odds of getting these newer therapies. And so I think for me, that's been the most surprising to finally kind of lay out what at least anecdotally, I'd been assuming that it really wasn't just about access. It wasn't just about insurance. It wasn't just about means and, and income, that there is something going on there, uh, some form of racial bias, implicit or explicit or otherwise, some form of structural differences that are actually really driving the disparities that we've been observing. And that now I can really argue that, hey, I looked across three different studies, three different settings, and the disparities play out. And so now's the time not to just think about the the traditional um, factors that have been causing it, but really diving to some important ones, such as structural racism, systemic racism, and trying to get at the why. I think that that's the, I mean, that is as clear as day that there's a structural problem. And I think that doing those studies that you've done is critically important. Where are you taking that information? I found it through your social media. I found it through your Twitter. Um, yeah. I know that you are doing lots of invited talks, lots of plenaries, lots of grand rounds. Where else are you taking it and where are you finding it has the most bite? Mm. Yeah. So I think for me, it's been really special to bring it back to the community. Um, and so my work to date has been about these large database studies to try and describe the disparities. And now we're getting into the understanding of this work. That's like the second focus of my work from detecting and describing to understanding to actually eliminating. And so we're going to the patients. We're going to our veterans around the country and saying, you know, what are these conversations that you're having with your doc in the clinic, in the in the hospital about starting these new therapies and, and what um, kind of conversations are you having? How are the barriers different if you're a white patient with means versus if you're a black patient with means or otherwise? And, and help us figure this out. Help us create the interventions to reduce them. So talking to the patients and the communities has been huge. Um, beyond the the talks and the podcasts and the, and the social media presence, I think it's also been cool to connect with our local media here in Pittsburgh. And so connecting with uh, the local local CBS station, connecting with our local national public radio um, station so that patients and communities can reach out and say, hey, I, I heard this 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 brother on, on online, I saw him on TV talking about this condition that I had, and I need to find out more. I need to talk to my doctor. I need to talk to um, someone else who knows a little bit more about this. Um, and for me, that's been the most exciting part of the work. I think um, I've learned a lot from great mentorship about how to write a good paper, how to write a good grant. But this next step of really getting into the community so that this message is not just living in these academic journals and grants, but it's actually starting to make a difference is, is huge for me. So I'm super excited to keep learning there. You and I have had some fun conversations over the phone the last couple of years about how you're 
putting that together and how you're kind of creating that so that they can find you so that, you know, producers can find you and everyone else that's looking for content can find what you're offering, which is really relevant and really important. Acknowledging that the studies that you published, those three that you described are all on veterans. Has anyone from the Veterans Administration contacted you subsequent to publication? Yeah, so sorry for the first two. And I may have misspoke. The first two studies were non-veterans. So the first two in 2018 okay, sorry, and 2020 I were, yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Uh, and so the oh, final that's right. study. That, of course. Was, no, no, no. You're, thank you for clarifying that. I totally misunderstood. Right. The final one was in, was in veterans. Exactly. Where it is supposed exactly. to be that equal access. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying yep, that. Yeah. No, but it was cool. So we published it in uh, in July of 2021. Um, a few weeks later, we got word from the health services research division here at the VA nationally that they wanted to write up a, a blog post on our findings and disseminate the findings to national leadership in the VA. Um, I've gotten word from the former chief medical officer to kind of highlight our findings uh, in the VA nationally. And so um, this work is expanding. And I think folks are excited to not just support a new um, early career researcher, but really to get into the the why, first of all, and also finally to get into the how and how we can actually reduce these uh, inequities. And so some of the fear that I had, honestly, about like, oh, am I going to paint the VA in a bad light? Like, are people going to be upset about these findings? Were actually really reduced by the the support that I had from the leadership um, to to disseminate the work, disseminate the findings, and to try to work with us and our team to figure out how to actually reduce them. That is really exciting that they have reached out. I was genuinely curious, acknowledging that the VA, I worked at one in residency and in medical school. It's a monolith. I mean, it is a massive, it is the bureaucracy uh, in (laughs) healthcare. And that they reached out to you that quickly, I think is truly commendable. I want to circle back to the very beginning of the talk when, of our conversation, when you mentioned the work that you're doing, you did use the pronoun we, which would suggest that acknowledging you're wildly talented and super smart and good at writing grants and good at doing, you, you're, you have a team, you've got some people that are doing the work with you. Who makes up the team that is helping you drive this? Yeah, for sure. So definitely a huge shout out to to my mentor team here. Um, you know, when I left fellowship back in 2018, that was the single most thing I was looking for. Like number one on that pro cons list uh, when I was looking for a job wasn't just salary, which is going to be amazing, obviously, to finally get a real salary, uh, quote unquote real, right? Um, not just... Uh, <laughs> Can't can't hate on the residency salary, which is uh, was obviously very meaningful uh, in Boston, but not just title, not just the amount of startup funds, but that I was going to have a, a mentoring team to really bring me from, you know, back in 2018, Mark, I had two papers, um, but none of them were first author research papers. And I was out in the job market trying to convince someone to hire me <laughs> with the story that, hey, I can be great. Um, not yet, but I, I do have that potential. Um, and with the right support, leadership and, and mentorship, I can get there. Um, and so we're in, what, three years or three and a half years or so from that from my first interview here at Pittsburgh, we're at our 60th paper, um, just hit this past week. And that was all about mentorship. So an incredible primary mentor who literally reads and writes over every single thing that I send them. Um, You know, sometimes great. Sometimes I wish it was less, but uh, it's gotten to the point where I can really trust his his feedback and responses to my work. And he's just one person on on a team of secondary mentors 
So I got a health equity content expert, uh, pharmacoepidemiology expert, biostatisticians, program analyst, a research coordinator who we're able to hire over the past year, admin staff. So it's just like it's a it's a huge team that really helps bring this work along that so that I can take a step back and really think through what's been going on um, with this work, why this work matters um, and allow them to kind of shepherd the work. And that was critical in May of 2020 when we're in the middle of a pandemic, when George Floyd was murdered. And I was still being expected to take care of patients as an attending um, literally the day after George Floyd was killed, write our research grant and budget and submit that to the VA um, and continue to write papers. And so not having an incredibly supportive team here at Pitt and at the VA here, would, would I just would not have made it. Um, honestly. And I think that it's been so valuable to have that support. I will ever, ever be grateful to um, this team here. And I, I hope that anyone who is starting and embarking upon a career um, like this can reach out to to kind of test the and just learn what really matters, uh, because I didn't realize how important that was until I got here, for sure. The work that you do, I think, is going to really take two parallel roads, right? It's the pharmacoequity work that you do. But what you just described is the critical evolution of mentee to mentor, of someone rising into leadership, of understanding being on a team and then learning how to lead a team. Do you feel like you're ready to start embracing that, that someone's going to now come to you and say, look, I'm ready. I'm going to do a great job, but I need a mentor. And then in parallel with that, what sort of adjunctive learning are you doing? What sort of reading? What sort of coursework? What sort of experience are you looking for to grow your own sense of what kind of leader you want to be and what sort of skills you really want to hone? It's a phenomenal question, as always. And I think for me, um, leadership has always been important. Uh, I'm a, a PK or a pastor's kid. And so I've seen my dad kind of as the model of leadership, both the, both the servant leader as well as just a, a business leader. He's also a private practice uh, primary care doc. And so he's giving me a lot of mentorship and just in my life. And so kind of living with with that human and growing up under his, his guidance, um, I've known what I've wanted to be for for several years now um, and known how important it is to learn from others and to not feel like I can just do it on my own. And so any leadership course that I can be a part of, I snatch up uh, right now. I'm in a foundations of leadership course here at the University of Pittsburgh with our um, school of business that's giving us the foundations of, of both the healthcare business administration side as well as the leadership side. Um, any diversity leadership opportunity that has come up, whether through the Association of American Medical Colleges, American Heart Association, Robert Wood Johnson, I've been fortunate to have support to attend those and be a part of those. Because, um, yeah, I want to be a leader one day. I want to. And, and that's it feels one day. funny saying that. Hey, whoa, yeah. Whoa, 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 what? <laughs> You it are, feels man. funny saying that, right? Like the, yeah. the title, the title kind of makes everyone feel like that's when you finally and officially are a leader. Learning more <laughs> yeah. and more, obviously, but that's not. It's not case. a certificate. It's it's action. Yes. <laughs> and as someone who, right, people, we all get ascribed that in different times. Like you're there. Uh, yeah. It'll be part of your portfolio for the rest of your career and you'll exercise it in the ways that you choose to do so. But embrace the fact that you're there. There's no future tense with respect to leadership in you. 
Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I think like you're alluding to hold, um, listening to that and appreciating that and getting some of that learning done quicker than probably I had anticipated. Yeah, uh, yeah. Meaningful. So whether it's the courses, whether it's the books, um, yeah. it's on the job I, training, soaking it all up. And yeah, yeah, I think it's been fun to, again, just have the time to be able to do that. Time is so critical um, in this life and in this work. Um, so grateful to have a job that allows yeah. me and a Affords me the time to be able to gain some of that leadership expertise while doing the hard work of clinical science or clinical research, clinical patient care, et cetera. We'll, we'll trade leadership books. I like to talk about leadership books. I like to poke holes in them and criticize them, but I also like to <laughs> get a recommendation and give a recommendation. So acknowledging you are an avid reader, what is a leadership book that has been particularly resonant for you? Yeah, good question. So I, like I mentioned, time is so important to me. Um, and so the two books that I recently read are indistractable um, just a couple of days ago. And I'm trying to remember the guy's name, but I won't. Um, but I won't have to. Sorry to get away from the mic a little bit. Near Eyal. So indistractable. Um, and talks about how to control your attention and choose your life. Um, and so that chapter one, get off Twitter. Yeah, exactly. You could still be creative with your with your social media, but you've got to be super right. thoughtful. Um, that yeah. and deep work have been completely transformative for me, and just setting my day and like really making time for what matters. Because I know that um, as the transition from mentee to mentor comes along, so to do the the amount of emails, the amount of admin work, et cetera. And so to be able to develop structures in place now um, to make it easier down the road, I think is going to be huge. You're one of a couple of people who's now recommended deep work to me. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick that one up. Can I throw one back to you? Please, please. Cru- crucial conversations. Have you read Crucial Conversations yet? I have not. I've also heard heard it plugged. One of the most important books I've ever read in my life. Uh, I wish I'd read it way earlier than I did. I would have loved to have read that book in medical school, if not before. I use it in like every facet of my life. My wife read it. I gave copies to my parents. Uh, some of my friends picked it up. But at work with patients in multidisciplinary huddles, in meetings, at the board, the skills in that around exactly what it says crucial conversations mm. unbelievably powerful I, I that book is really I, it lives in my phone i reference it so that would be my that would be mine back to you awesome awesome i appreciate that yeah in terms of teams though i think we need to spend our last few minutes talking about some other teams that have been very important to us i am yet to master six years into podcasting the graceful segue but we're doing this anyways we got to talk about hoops a little bit <laughs> You're a you're a 90s and you're a 90s NBA fan. I am an 80s NBA fan and a contemporary NBA fan. Okay. So for me, it was the Showtime Lakers. And there's that new show that's coming out called Winning Time. It's I think it just came out. Cannot wait. Because I was a little kid during the Showtime Lakers era. I think like 85, I was eight years old. Um, and then the contemporary game. Make the case for the 90s for me, because the 90s is when I went elsewhere for my sports entertainment. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. So I was a I'm a child of immigrants. My parents are Nigerian. Um, soccer or football is their game. And so it wasn't until I was uh, seven or in 92 that I watched my first basketball game. And so I think it was Bulls, Knicks. Um, Jordan was in his in his prime. And I was smitten by just this how this human um, interacted on the court and just was with all the swag and energy and leadership that he brought in. And so The Last Dance was my uh, amazing love documentary over the past few years, couple of years. Um, <laughs> and so, again, just that show was dominant. amazing. I know. Yeah. It was it was great. It was so great. Yeah. And I'm, I'm obsessed with dominance in the sport, though, again, my bias is to a certain level. And so I'm not a big Tom Brady fan, not a big uh, a Pats fan, though I appreciate and respect their dominance. But it was really cool to see Jordan. I think speaking of pluripotence, which we talk about a lot, he mastered it like he is not just the greatest NBA player uh, of all time. Obviously, anyone can can quote me on that. Um, but he got into the the kick game like we were just talking about. He got into the movies um, and he's just to me what I anticipate and hope that one day I could be able to have the impact in um, not just career, but just in the world that that he had. And so. Again, 90s basketball, a little bit more from the game, but the chills that I get listening to kind of that intro music to the Bulls back in the 90s or or as a New Yorker listening to the Knicks uh, intro music, it's it just, yeah, it's not like anything else. It, there's nothing else like it. And I love that you are able to see yourself in that same sort of pluripotent mode of all the different things you'll be able to do going forward and get to do. Which is the best Jordan shoe? I'm team I'm team four. The yeah. fours are my yeah. favorite. I've never had a pair of Jordans. If I was to ever get one, I would want the fours. And like I told you before we started recording, the Roger Federer, Michael Jordan mashup four for me is the apex shoe with one exception. The original hot pink and black Andre Agassi challenge court. <laughs> that is the, you, that is the all time shoe. You love you love the tennis reference. Yeah, I mean, I do. as a as someone who lived like a few blocks away from uh, um, what do you call it, from the U.S. Open and, and oh, Queens, I, 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 oh have all, I have all respect. I have all respect for that. Oh, my gosh. Um, but which but is the Apex me, Jordan? Yeah, for me, it's a Jordan 11. You know, Jordan 11 breads, um, the, the black and red. I just that is a a favorite sneaker for me. It's one of the last ones that came out that yeah. from the original class, um, that patent leather is just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it, but I love That's, the fours. I have about seven pairs of ones. And so they're all beautiful. They're all beautiful. They're just so cool, man. The colorways, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, oh, everything about them was so great. They just went to a whole other level with those. What are the things that do you see for yourself when you come back on the show in six or 12 months, what have you sort of set for yourself as places where you would like to see the work that you're doing and the, the whole you sort of moving towards? 
Yeah. So would love to have Pharmaco Equity be a part, continue to be a part of national conversations. I think yeah. right now um, I'm being an aggressive tweeter <laughs> around the topic and it's so cool to see it play out in whatever your favorite field is. If you're a rheumatologist, you're thinking about access to some of these new expensive drugs if you're an oncologist. Um, and so my goal in the next year is to make Pharmaco Equity the, the new quality metric uh, across our, our field. Um, um, and I think that that's something Amazing. that is very doable um, and it's going and I, I we're seeing it already. We had a couple we had a paper come out on cellulitis treatment and pharmacoequity. We have one coming out soon around um, hepatic disease. And so I'm super excited to kind of see that kick off and to see the ripple effect. So I don't need to be a co-author on a study or it doesn't need to be coming from me. But other folks are like, oh, yeah, this is what I decided to start my career in is pharmacoequity and, and renal disease. And so that's that would be a that would be a joy for me um, for life, just to continue growing as a, as a human. I think the past two years have been a lot of learning and reflecting for me around how race and racism has been embedded to our society for for decades. And so more correctly for centuries. Um, and so shout out to folks like Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram Kendi, um, Kamara Phyllis-Jones, who have giving us that language, giving us the resources to be able to push that conversation forward. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to continuing to dive into their learnings, their writings. And that's just been so informative for me as I think about health and health equity and pharmacoequity more specifically is that unfortunately, none of this conversation is new. And so let's use some of the framework, some of the, the language, some of that history, like we both talked about um, to bring us into a better conversation of not why we why we need to do this, but why haven't we done it yet? The idea of pharmacoequity as a performance metric or a quality metric is brilliant. That is really, really interesting. I'm going to sit with that one for a little bit, and I think probably will text you next week when I'm back at work because we talk and we think about metrics, and every healthcare professional is measured in some way, shape, or form. Many of them are publicly reported. That's a powerful one. Uh, it's very, very interesting, and I love that you called that out. With all of the work that you're doing, where do people find you? How do they follow you? Where do people uh, get to learn more about all of the stuff that you're talking about? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Um, that's kind of my my home uh, for social media. So at U-R-S-E-N-E-S-S-I-E-N. Um, that's kind of where I've been living. My website, www.ursen.com is another great place to find my writings and um, other resources. And it's a great place to find our anti-racism and medicine podcast. So obviously I can't leave uh, without shouting out our podcast family, um, Derek Paul, Michelle Agunole, Rohan Kazanchi, uh, Lashira Nolan, Naomi Field, Jasmine Williams, um, Sud, uh, Victor, and Alec. Uh, the whole gang has been so, so, so incredible to me over the last two years. Um, that's really been a big pride of mine is to join you, uh, Mark, on the other side of the mic recording and, and connecting with so many amazing leaders around race and racism and medicine. Um, and that team of mostly medical students wanted to highlight want to highlight that has been teaching and educating our country around how race drives our health. And so, so proud of the work that they've been doing um, and really honored to call them colleagues and friends. That's fantastic. And we'll have links to all of that great stuff that you're doing in the show notes. So definitely everyone go and check that out. Utibe, this was an absolute treat, man. We will have you back 
in the future. But in the meantime, thank you for what you are doing, because especially for people kind of from the generation just before you, this is novel work. We never learned this stuff. We didn't think about these things in the way that you are not just framing them, but also illustrating through, you know, solid research and then describing for a general audience. It's critically important. This was an absolute treat, man. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate you having me, man. Looking forward to uh, coming back on soon. And yeah, meeting in person one of these days. I got to make it out west. Absolutely. That's right. We'll make it happen. Thanks, man. All right, brother. Take care. My thanks once again to T-Bay for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space Podcast. The show notes are packed. All of the articles that he spoke about and shared, they're linked in the show notes. You can find his Twitter feed there as well. You can find his website in the show notes. So definitely please go check that out and follow the work that he's doing. It's absolutely phenomenal. Please do share your thoughts about this episode on social media. I'm on Twitter at ETS show, Instagram at explore the space show. And if you want to throw in your favorite era of NBA basketball and your favorite sneakers, love getting into those conversations as well as does Utibe. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton university for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks to you so much for listening to this episode. We will be back soon with more great content. We've got some Med Lasso coming your way. We've got more great stuff coming. It's going to be a fun few months, so definitely stay tuned. Subscribe wherever you like to download your shows. And definitely please leave that five-star rating and review. Tell your friends about it. Hit me on social media. Hit me on email, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. We will be back soon. Till then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.